Trauma Code to New York City, Trauma Code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. about my trying to get them out the field with a bullets flying indiscriminate and the world turn a blind eye and consider it because they'll say he got a ride it costs 500 plus a little something on the side if you want to make the cutoff gotta grease the middleman five days trekking through the desert because of swore his misery auntie made it three days before she passed he spoke it through his tears to me he's crossing into egypt now but it don't get no easier why nobody care why they don't put us on the media and i don't got the answers feel like swear today i see ukraine i see two things that ain't the same and yet they are you change your name change your face i still feel the pain why i'm getting punished for my melanin retainment apologize for what i got the right to be upset i think the world should be ashamed i hope the world will make a change i hope it starts soon this one's for cartoon i'm all by no distress i just want to do my best i don't get time to impress if you want fight or stay blessed oh oh oh, oh focus on my race Welcome back to the Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, live and in studio for uh, today, Monday, November 27th. Um, And that song that we just heard was uh, Khartoum. Um, And uh, that's going to be the subject of today's uh, interview we have on the line, uh, who we've had previously, Dahlia Abdelmonem, uh, to give us an update on what's been going on in Sudan. Um, and before we get to that interview, obviously, um, there is a temporary, right, four-day, um, whatever they're going to call it, pause, ceasefire. Um, at least the major hostilities in Gaza um, have taken a moment for people to breathe, for you know the dead to be buried in mass graves. Um, but it's uh, still a crisis situation that risks at any time tipping back over into the genocidal violence that uh, we've seen over the past couple of months. Um, and even so, uh, we saw there was, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit later on about healthcare workers killed uh, in Palestine. And there was a internist, a general practitioner killed in Janine um, during this, you know, so-called ceasefire uh, by Israeli forces. And we know there were also three Palestinian Americans who were shot uh, and several of them seriously injured in Burlington, Vermont, of all places. Um, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about what um, this moment represents and what we can do in this moment. Um, but I was, uh, you know, there was some people, I think, rather cynically, disingenuously asking people who are challenging the violence in Gaza, you know, what have you been doing about other genocides? Why just this genocide? Um 
And, you know, usually it's not said in, in good faith, but at the same time that was happening, I saw some updates from our upcoming guest, Dahlia Abdelmonaim, uh, and some of what's going on, especially in Darfur, definitely rise to the level to be considered genocide. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, and also we'll talk with Dahlia about what's been going on in Gaza, since she is also in the neighboring state of Egypt. So let's have a, a little musical break while we get everything set up for our guest, uh, and we'll be back. And, uh, of course, you are listening to Trauma Code on WBAI in New York City. Be right back. It's been five years, I still love everything about ya But all I trust in us, there's no more fear Although I haven't really been a perfect partner Your mind, your heart, and honesty is how I breathe And when I follow you, it feels like home And in these ways, I'm humble Can we pack our bags and run away? the mountain high just you and me hit me like a storm on a summer's Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald live and in studio for uh, November 27th, 2023. Uh, and we have on the line a good friend of the show, now a return guest, I guess one of our regulars, our correspondent on what's going on in Sudan, Dalia Abdelmoneim. Are you there? Can you hear us? Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me again. Hold on one second. I try again. Sorry, a little technical difficulty. No worries. Hi. Thanks for having me on again to the show. Uh, and, you know, uh, for people who haven't uh, listened, definitely I recommend to go back and listen to that episode. I don't even remember when it was, um, a couple of months ago. Um, really excellent. And, and we were able to introduce you to our audience. And for people who, who don't remember or didn't catch that episode, you had very um, recently before then had sort of escaped Khartoum through the desert. Um, and even before that, been active in the revolution that toppled Omar Bashir, um, that was then sort of betrayed by a military coup and that devolved into civil war. <clears throat> Is how's that for a summary of of, uh, of how we know you and what's been going on in Sudan? It's actually, I mean, it's the perfect summary. It is. We went from the highs of the revolution to the depth of a war breaking out in our backyards, literally. And here we are, seven or eight months later, not much has changed. I'm still outside my home country. I don't know when I'll be able to go back. And the war is raging, and the statistics and the numbers keep getting worse and worse day by day. And it's a forgotten war now, because with all that's happening around us, Sudan has slipped from the headlines, and it's slipped from the minds and from the media attention and from everything. And so the onus is on us Sudanese to keep on 
talking about Sudan to keep on trying, doing all that we can to make sure that it's not a forgotten war. And it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs when you're trying to compete for attention and there's so much, you know, going on around you. And um, it doesn't, not one conflict is more important than the other and not one conflict is of less, you know, importance to another. But this is the world we live in where you really have to compete to get attention or to get your, to create your space, your place, so you can, you know, stand up and shout and say, hey, this is still happening. Look at us. Don't forget us. Right. And we obviously so. live in, in a world of sort of constant imminent threat. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, the rise of, of fascism and genocide. A scary moment. Um, and we're going to talk about some heavy topics. But one of the things that I also really enjoy about talking with you is uh, the music and culture that you turn us, uh, me and our audience, onto. Um, so, we, you know, we talked about uh, you had to leave Khartoum with the uh, outbreak of civil war in Sudan. Mm -hmm. And our opening intro was laid over uh, an, a song called Khartoum, right? Do you want to say anything else about that before we move on? Um. It's the first time I think it's usually when we there's songs about Sudan, it's about the whole country. But this is specifically about our capital, our for the majority, for for many of us, our hometown. And so that when I heard that song first time, it just I literally burst into tears because it it said everything that we've all been going through. When I say we, I mean my friends and family and and people I know and so on. And this, you know, it's, it just says everything. I was listening to the song again and the lyrics, you know, it's, it just resonates. It really resonated with me. And I think um, the artist who, who wrote the song and performs it bass, he's US based. And he said, it's his like homage, not homage, but it's like the despair that he's feeling. And there's, because a lot of us are, this, you know, we don't know what we can do. We really, there's not much we can do. So this, that's his way of, you know, talking about it and bringing it to the forefront. And that's his forte. It's his music, his rap, his writing, his production. And that's what he could do. And that to me says a lot. And it, it resonated, it resonated with a lot of us. And, um, you know, you came back to my attention sort of because organizing and work you've been doing, correct me if I'm wrong or, or clarify, um, sort of a conference of Sudanese in exile on a path forward to a brighter future for your country. Is that about right? Um, actually, no. Uh, the conference was about to highlight the humanitarian crisis in Sudan. And what we hope to gain from the conference is basically to to bridge or to connect international NGOs and international aid agencies with local grassroots initiatives and you know and organizations who are still working in Sudan you know to find a way to get them to meet in the middle to be able to to be, to better serve those who are who are in need of humanitarian assistance i mean 25 Sudan's population is around 40 41 million more than half of the population requires humanitarian aid and that number, of course, has doubled after the war. We have one of the highest rates of internally displaced people in the world right now. We already had nearly 2 million people internally displaced. On top of that comes an additional nearly 6 million because of the war. That's just internally. 
I'm one of those who, who I'm, I'm, I'm displaced and I managed to get out. But there's millions of, of my fellow Sudanese who are still, you know, they have no other choice. They can't leave. They're in Sudan and the war is raging. And if anything, the war is spreading. The conflict is no longer confined to certain cities or to certain areas. It's now spreading. And every day the reports that I read and I, you know, the information that we that comes out and so on is is it's not giving me there's no signs of this war calming down or a ceasefire succeeding or you know a compromise reached or anything it's just one continuous every day it's just the news is worse every day basically i i have yet to hear one piece of good news coming out of sudan well um you know at the risk of of, of being a downer i think it's worth orienting ourselves cuz you know as you said um you know the the war in Ukraine and then the war in uh, Gaza have um, really filled up the room, so to speak, for people's attention over the last couple of years. Almost it seems like, um, but um, so in you know Sudan, we talked about how there was a military dictatorship of Omar Bashir. There was a, a mass uprising that we talked about in the last episode um, that managed to topple him, and there was an interim period of a sort of a transitional gov- government with wide civil society participation, right, that was then uh, quashed in a coup by the military leaders, and the military leadership devolved into fighting over sort of the spoils of the country. Um, And you had mentioned, um, you know, the history of conflict and ethnic conflict in what is a very um, kind of diverse country. Uh, We know that, you know, South Sudan breaking away into an independent country was part of a process of violence um, from Khartoum towards that um, those peoples, and we we remember, you know, it's not so long ago that we were talking about genocide in Darfur. You know, it was ten how many years ago? Um, and, and twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, and and the players there, right? Are um, Hameti? Correct me if I have it wrong. Is was now the leader of the RSF, um, one of the groups battling for control of the country was uh, closely aligned with the Janjaweed and associated with those atrocities in Darfur. Is that about right, or what else would you say about that? Um, no, no, you're absolutely right. But the one one distinction I would make, the Janjaweed has evolved into the RSF. Hmm. You know, So the RSF are the Janjaweed, and the Janjaweed was created or basically set up by Omar al-Bashir to act like his private army in Darfur, and they evolved into becoming his private army, which is how they managed to progress from being, you know, militiamen on horseback to an army, you know, a militia army that can pay thousands of dollars in salaries to get mercenaries to sign up for their, for their, you know, for their, for their army. And they have, they're, they're able, they have, they own, Hemiti owns the largest gold mountain in Sudan. He's one of the richest men in the country. So resources is not a problem for him, which is how he's able to replenish his troops, his army with weaponry, ammunition, you know, the spoils of war, you know, at the, at the cost, at the expense of us, the people. And so Hemiti is... He's he's become a major player, and I will also say after the after the coup in nineteen in twenty twenty one, what galvanized him, what emboldened him even further, 
was the fact that a lot of when he was made legitimate when everyone knows who they are you know the rsf is now seen as a legitimate force and they were legitimized the the coup was legitimized because the international community at at large when i mean the international community i'm talking about specifically the quartet or the troika which was made up of the united states the uk the eu and uh, I think Norway, those were the countries that were, that, you know, the entities that were involved. They legitimized Hemeti. And at the same time, the failure of our civilian politicians and the political parties from our side also played a big part in, in making him the force that he is right now. And hmm. we... I personally keep thinking, how can we deal with him? We cannot have a militia ruling the country. And yet, at this moment in time, they are winning the war. And On the ground, they are gaining further and further into army territory. And it, the, the, I mean, I didn't, the idea that one day this, my country would be ruled by a militia never occurred to me. But every day that passes, that possibility becomes bigger and bigger. And, and that's just a frightening idea. And I don't know how we'll be able to do with it. I don't know how, what we can do to deal with it. And it's just, it's just uh, it's a lot. so messed up. It's so messed up. Yeah, it's just a nightmare. And I don't want to cover the war like a sporting event, you know, who's winning mm -hmm. here and there. Um, but, you know, the, the, the violence that broke out early on was sort of battle for important parts of the capital. Um, and we know that, uh, you know, the the... RSF has man maintained control and, and now exercises dominance in the Darfur region um, where they've sort of originated. Um, but anything else that you would say about how the war has evolved in terms of, you know, RSF battling the military for control of the capital and pretty much most of the country? I don't know if Port Sudan or any parts are really um, able to, to have any sort of peace or stability at this time. I mean... I've, the 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 crown jewels that that whether it's the Janjaweed or whether the RSF whether it's the army has always been the capital Khartoum, and whoever so far it's basically d divided between both sides, but from until a few days ago, literally, I mean, the majority of the western part, the western region of Sudan, and you're talking about Darfur, which is the size of let's say Spain and parts of France, that's how big it is. It's mm. the size of Texas. It's a huge region and it borders Chad and Libya and Central African Republic. And so it's a large porous borders and it, 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 you know, and it's such a large piece. And it, it, what's happening right now in Darfur is not just a repetition of what happened 20 years, it's even worse because we know it's happening and we can see it's happening and nothing is being done about it. There's no outcry, there's no, you know, not in, uh, never again, there's no save Darfur, you know, celebrities going up, popping up on our TV screens, you know, and telling us, you know, we need to stop this, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a, we need to stop this crime from happening. Nothing's happening. No one's doing anything. But we know we see what's happening. I just read a report from Human Rights Watch, and it's ethnic cleansing. It's ethnic cleansing happening all over again. 
And it's like we're shouting into an empty room. It's an echo chamber, you know. I'm shouting and it's just coming back to me, you know. And it's what's disheartening for, for you know, because we keep saying never again, you know. Every time something happens, we all say never again. But it keeps happening time and time again. And this time round, no one cares. I mean, that's, I think, is what to me is the really the painful part and the really, you know, it just hits me, you know, so, you know, it just hits me because we keep talking, we keep shouting, we keep posting, we keep doing, and we see what's happening, the atrocity, you know, ethnic cleansing in 20, you know, in 2023, tribes and certain people are being targeted for their skin color, being targeted for their ethnic background, and they're being wiped out. And nothing is, no one is batting an eyelid and saying anything about it, you know. You get all these really weak statements from political, you know, from states and and and, and political actors and international community, but there's no action, you know. There's no investigative, you know, independent investigations being held. There's no fact-finding missions being sent to ascertain what's really happening. There's no targeting targeted sanctions, really hard-hitting targeted sanctions at those who are committing these crimes. And we know who they are. We all know who they are. You know, there's no targeting or even just admonishing, you know, the parties that are supporting the RSF, you know, supporting it with arms, supporting it with money, supporting it with, you you know, logistics and infrastructure. It's just... It's disgusting, actually, when you we, we all know this is happening and nothing is being done about it. And, and I, I want to get into what um, what could be done, you know, both by, um, you know, international actors and players, as well as, you know, individuals and groups interested in solidarity. Um, but I think it's worth, you know, we've talked to, on this show about um, how, you know, there's a legal definition of genocide, how and why maybe, you know, what's going on in Gaza raises to the level of genocide. Um, and, and I'll make that case again later on in the show. But <clears throat> how about applied to what's going on in Darfur? Is that a question that, that should be asked? Is is there genocide going on in Darfur right now that the world has the burden to intervene and stop? I mean, what is the definition of genocide? Is It's the targeted killings of a certain group of people. I mean... It's right, in, in summarized in, about, right? right in essence the the uh, destruction or attempted destruction in whole or in part uh, a group usually an ethnic group it can be religious or yeah. otherwise um so is is that fair to to talk about what's going on in Darfur and then what is you know having realized that what is uh, what are we called to do um if we're in a position to do so to to end to stop the genocide in my opinion, it is a genocide and ethnic cleansing of the Masalit tribe, for example, is is happening in Darfur. Uh, and what can be done is what we, what happened before. You know, we could sanction the leaders of the RSF. I mean, really heavily sanction them. You know, the security of the UN is keeping quite, you know, it's, it's keeping silent. You know, send fact-finding missions, send you know, in, investigate like you've done for past cri- war crimes. It's a war crime that's happening. When, when you, when I, when I read reports of two hundred men being, you know, of mass graves of more than a thousand bodies being found, 
of when you know when when women who people have managed to cross into Chad into into the border country of Chad and they tell you they burnt our homes they killed our boys they checked the the, the babies whether the baby's a male or a female you know mm. at the conference we had two weeks ago there was a lady from Darfur and her two sons were shot dead in front of her wow. you know and and she's telling the story to the whole auditorium of nearly 400 people and she's standing there and she's saying my sons were killed in front of me what so, do you say to that i mean how can you justify i mean you know it's very easy to get the information it's very easy to verify the information you know it's not that hard but there's no there's no action there's no impetus from anyone from any side that can actually do something so you doing know, something you talked about sanctions, but then what's sort of the, um, the, the, the corollary of that question is, is, you know, you talked about Hameti being wealthy, but where are, you know, the arms and the um, support coming that are driving this conflict? In the past, uh, we talked about how influential the United Arab Emirates have been in Sudan and how they have relationships with both the RSF and uh, the historical military uh, forces. Um, so, you know, if we're talking about sanctions, what what really is going on to drive this that, that needs to be stopped? Okay. Um, Big question. Sorry about sanctions, that. Sanctions, yeah, you know, sanctions as in, you know, make it difficult for them to actually, I mean, the RSF's head of PR communications was traveling around Europe, meeting European, you know, mm. uh, government leaders and so on. How can that be? How can you meet the PR head of a militia group that is waging war on civilians? You know, it just make it make sense in a way, if you know what I mean. And then, and also when I say sanctions, yes, sanctions, you know, the UAE is supporting the RSF because simply it comes down to this. The UAE sees the RSF as the entity that can fight the Sudanese, the Islamists in this in Sudan, you know, and to that that is you know the be you know the the me the, the end justifies the means so to speak, and arms are still you know the sale of arms you know arms is still um, weapons and ammunition and arms are still coming into Sudan through the routes that are controlled by the RSF you know drones mm. and RPGs and I know what, and they're conducting I mean. They're defeating a national army. It's, I mean, that says it all. So there's so many things that can be done, you know. The, you know, lean on countries like the UAE. Lean on, you know, it's a proxy war, not a proxy war. You know, Wagner Group was also a huge ally of the RSF, you know. And there have been reports that, but unconfirmed reports that some Ukrainian, there were Ukrainian fighters in Sudan fighting against the RSF and the Wagner troops. So there's a lot of, it's very muddled, it's very messy, it's a, it's a messed up, it's a very messy affair. But that, going, going back to the RSF, I just think, you know, the sanctions are in place, but they can be stricter and more, you know, hard hitting, so to speak. Hit them where it hurts, hit their pockets, shut down their bank accounts, don't allow them to make a transaction. You know, they have so many, subsidiary companies shut them down make sure they do not be, they're not able to conduct business and this is how they generate their money you know their their logistic companies pr companies the company that handles the social media accounts for the rsf is a canadian company hmm. 
Wow. You know, they get paid something like $700,000 a year to maintain their social media accounts. And you should see their posts, slick, you know, slick videos edited with the music montage. Their posts on Twitter come out in both in perfect Arabic, perfect English. And the company is a Canadian company. They have offices in the UAE. You know, how are they still allowed to operate? If you're just joining us, uh, this is Trauma Code on WBAI in New York, and we've been talking with uh, Dalia Abdelmanem about the uh, war uh, in Sudan, the genocide in Darfur. Um, and we were just talking about who uh, are sort of the international actors driving this and what um, targeted sanctions and other international interventions could be done um, to to stop the genocide in Darfur and, and work towards peace in, in Sudan. Um, you know, you you had said at the beginning of the of the interview, Dahlia, that you'd um, been part of a conference um, highlighting the humanitarian situation in Sudan. Um, so, you know, what can be done to support the people in Sudan uh, from the humanitarian side that that you discussed at this conference? Reach out, for example, if you're in the U.S. There's several Sudanese, you know. Um, organizations like this, there's the Sudanese Physicians of America, or they're called SPA, SPA, I think, Sudanese Physicians of America. They really help, they, they're able to reach out to the local grassroots organizations and grassroots initiatives that are still working in Sudan. They help them, they get them supply, medical supplies, they get them, you know, assistance, you know, they, you know, simple things like bandages, you know, painkillers, you know, things like that, because nothing is coming through. There's towns in Khartoum, there's areas in Khartoum that have been besieged by the RSF for more than six months. Power has been out for more than six months. No water, no supplies allowed in or out. They literally smuggled in so that people can survive. You're talking about an, an area, one, one, one neighborhood, there's, there's like 100,000 people living there, besieged, six months. So there are some grassroots initiatives. There's one called the Emergency Response Rooms, which 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 evolved from the resistance committees that that emerged during the revolution and then after the revolution. It was basically youth-led initiatives, you know, to raise awareness about the revolution. And now they've shifted their attention and they're now working on you know making sure that supplies get through to those who can't leave. You know, the elderly, you know kids for they make sure they get their they get like a food package every week you know they need clean water they show them what to do to make sure to get clean water hygiene if they need electricity you know if they need to recharge their phone so they can keep in contact with family you know you know get they get battery operated generators so they can have some electricity some power just for a little bit so these grassroots initiatives are like the bloodline of a lot of areas in Sudan right now. There, especially you know, especially the areas that are conflict um, conflict region, which is mainly Darfur and and Khartoum. And so these are the ones who need the help the most. And there are several organizations in throughout. You know, whether it's in Canada, you know, there's a guy in Australia who's also raising money. So basically, if you know any Sudanese or any Sudanese association or group or you know in your area, in your state, they know what to do. But uh, for example, top of my head, there's spa. 
And then you have also the international donors and international aid agencies who don't know how to reach certain areas. So by meeting and collaborating with these grassroots-led initiatives, then they, at least they can reach more people. You know, maybe they can't get through because of logistics or because they don't have the legal permits. So, but they can gain access via these initiatives. So that's what that's what, what that was the whole point of the conference, and this is what we're trying to get across, and what we're trying to do. You know, we're not we, the conference was was a start, and we're trying to continue this work by setting up like a small, you know subsidiary that we will just work on ensuring that we can maintain that contact, that bridge between international donors and aid agencies with the local ones. Mm. Well, anything else that, um, anything else you want to talk about sitting, you're in uh, Egypt this time, last time you were in London, kind of um, yeah. freshly evacuated from, from Khartoum. Anything else you want to say um, sitting in Egypt and looking towards Sudan at this time? Uh, God, there's so much I can say. There's so there's nothing I can say. It's uh, it's just uh, it hasn't gotten better. I honestly, when I left my house in April, I really thought I'd be back in a week. It's been eight wow. months, and I have no idea if I'll ever be able to go back home. And it's and I see what's happening in Gaza, and it breaks my heart what's happening in Gaza. And then I you hear what's happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and there's conflict everywhere, and. I think the one thing I can say is that we shouldn't have to pick and choose which conflict or which war or which region we should follow. I think we should be we should keep informed we should be kept informed about all of them. We need to follow because you know conflict it's just having you know been the victim of war it's just the most devastating thing I have ever experienced in my life and watching what's happening in Gaza and in all those other areas, Ukraine, and I know I just don't know how people can sit and not care or not put in the effort to try and bring an end to these conflicts because the damage is, irre is irreparable. It's just too much. Right, and, and it will take us a long time to get over what we've been through. So. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you, um, uh, you know, reciprocating when I reached out uh, the opportunity to to speak, to listen, to build some solidarity. And, and, uh, and you know, it, it seems with, you know, more and more migrants, climate crisis, war, rise of fascism, um, we're all sort of uh, exiles from, from a, a world we almost don't recognize anymore. Um, Absolutely, yeah. But, uh, and, and so what about that? Anything else that you want to say um about um, Gaza, I'm going to speak a little bit more. And, and one thing that I think really struck me about the war in Gaza was how the medical infrastructure specifically had been targeted, including healthcare workers, as part of the campaign of destruction. Um, and yeah. I do recall early on, at least in the the war in Khartoum this year, that um, hospitals were sort of a um, a terrain of battle, um, although not necessarily destroyed in the same way that we're seeing in Al Shifa Hospital or Indonesia Hospital or Al Ada in Gaza. Anything else you want to say about that? Yeah, I mean, our health our health sector was was wasn't like the greatest. It was still very it was very quite poor. It was very under you know it was just a horrible health. Okay, let me rephrase that. 
basically so far more than 70% of our health facilities, be it uh, hospitals, clinics, or, you know, have been destroyed. Hmm. You know, surgical, uh, MSF, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, is, could possibly have to withdraw from Sudan, withdraw their services and their aid, simply because surgical supplies are not being allowed in to certain hospitals because the the both sides feel that these supplies can be used as weapons. You're talking about simple scalpels, you know, bandages, they're not being allowed in. So if MSF withdraws and they're actually helping run some of the few remaining hospitals that are open, you know, the, the healthcare sector in Sudan has completely collapsed. We have nothing, you know, they may not have been bombed, but they've been, you know, they've been strangulated. They can't function, you know. Uh, the the healthcare workers have been targeted. Doctors and nurses have been targeted, and they try to do their job because that's that's what they should do. They should help, and if they help an RSF soldier, they're accused of being traitors. If they help army soldiers, they're accused of being, you know, collaborators. Collaborators, and so it's just a nightmare. But you know, our hospitals haven't been bombed like the Shifa hospital has, for example, in Gaza, but they've been damaged beyond repair in so many other ways. And it it just goes to prove you don't need to you don't you don't need to bomb a place for it to render it you know out of out of you know render it uh, in uh, not being able to function. You can, there's so many other ways you can do it. And that's what both the RSF and SAF are doing right now. Wow. So um, anything else that you want to say about the topic before we pivot a little bit? Sudan, read up on it. It's, it's, I think for me always, one of, our, one of our strongest points has always been our diversity. And that diversity is now being used as a weapon against all of us as Sudanese. And we've had conflict throughout our history. But... I honestly really believe that I keep looking at Rwanda as a case in point as something that we should aspire to as Sudanese. And I hope that we will be one day be something like Rwanda, you know, to emerge from all of this and become a better nation and better, you know, better people, so to speak. Yeah, speaking of genocide and, and Rwanda has its own troubles and its own trials and its own inattention. Um, but, uh, when it, you know, I knew people that worked in the health sector in Burundi, um, and even just comparing mm -hmm. it to its neighbor, it's worlds away. Um, in, in some ways, much better for for you know, particularly in healthcare and other things. Um, yeah. So you know, whenever I have you on the air, I like whenever I have a guest on, I like to ask for recommendations. But I really look forward to yours. Um, and we've played, we talked about um, Boss, uh, I think, with Odyssey, uh, who did that opening song, Khartoum. Um, and also we played uh, while we were getting you on the line. Uh, what is it? Storm on a summer's uh, on a summer's day. Um, and uh, in a little bit, I'm going to play um, something from the Circle vs. the World album from Nadine El Ruby. Um, anything uh, either you want to say about those songs and any other recommendations that you want to bring to our audience about particularly Sudanese culture, but anything else that that you want to bring to our attention? There's so many different. You know, Sudanese music, uh, you know, it encompasses R&B and Afrobeats and our own unique Sudanese sound. And you get a mix of everything, hip hop, 
soul, neo soul, and I like the circle. I like the group, the circle, simply because they don't stick to one particular genre. They like to, you know, mix their sound. And um, the hot summer day, Gaida. She's a U.S. based actually singer as well. She was just on a European tour, and her voice is just heavenly. I just love it and. There's so many others, you know, I could actually send you some links and then maybe you can, once you post the episode, maybe you can post the links to Absolutely. all these other Sudanese singers because there's so many and they're so diverse in terms of sound and style and the Sarah and the Nubatones and there's like, you played before Odyssey, Odyssey had a new album released, I think a few months ago, it was also very good. So there's loads of sounds, you know, Sudanese singers and there's... um. Oh God, I forgot his name now. Ugh, it will come back to me. But yeah, I just, I mean, when I'm feeling down or when I'm feeling homesick, which is nearly every day, I just put on my Sudan music playlist and it, it, it helps. And I also like the old school Sudanese, like, you know, from my parents' generation. They, they had very patriotic songs because we had just gained independence. So their songs remind me of the, in a way, the good old days. The nostalgia. Well, excellent. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to play uh, in a little bit uh, These Days by Nadine El Ruby from the Circle vs. the World album. I think it was from 2020, kind of at the height of the pandemic worldwide. Um, anything else you want to say while we got you on the air for, with New York City? Uh, happy Thanksgiving. It's a bit late, but I hope you guys had a good uh, Thanksgiving or, yeah, Thanksgiving holiday. Well, thank you, uh uh, Dahlia Abdelmoname, always a pleasure to have you on. Update us on what's going on in Sudan. We'll have to follow you. Anything you want to say about how people can follow the work that you're doing on social media or elsewhere? Follow, you know, there's loads of Sudanese who are online who are posting. There's one called B. Uh, Sarah Al Hassan. Uh, and also follow the agencies that are based in Sudan, like MSF Sudan, Save the Children Sudan, United Nations, UNICEF, you know. They have on they update regularly, so they can you know they keep abreast of what's happening, and also organizations like Human Rights Watch, and uh, there's also Sudanese organizations like Ayin, which means I, and Beam Reports and Sudan War uh, Monitor. They they're very good at keeping track and updating on a regular basis 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 on what's happening in Sudan and. There, there are some of my sources I go to and I need more information and I can't find it. Excellent. Well, Dahlia, thank you for joining us on Trauma Code. Uh, in New York City, as we talked about uh, the war in Sudan, the genocide in Darfur. Let's have a little musical break and we'll be right back with you in New York City. Won't you find me now? 
If the truth is never reliable, and it costs more than a city of liars do, then why am I forgetting? Overthinking is a waste of time. Stay occupied. Water my soul, keep feeding my mind, and I wonder why. I see him shady on the low. Welcome back to the Trauma Code on WBAI. In New York City, and if you just joined the end of that with Dalia Abdelmonaim talking about the war in Sudan, um, and if you found that interesting, we have a previous interview with her from I think a couple months ago um, that is also a great background on uh, the topic. But look, the extraordinary level of violence that's directed at Gaza since October has risen to a level that calls our uh, both immediate att- attention and sustained response. There is a moment right now, a four-day humanitarian pause and a slow release of hostages that, unless news has been updated while I've been on the air, um, is set to expire, threatening to expire. You know, in the last seven or eight weeks, uh, at least 14,800 Palestinians in Gaza, about 6,000 of them children, have been killed uh, by the Israeli military. Uh, in those two months since the October 7th Hamas raid on southern Israel killed 1,200 and took about 200 host- uh, hostages. The violence has taken an unimaginable toll on civilians. A large number of the dead are infants, toddlers, and young children. More than half the population is internally displaced, while entire families have been killed en masse with no survivors. Uh, the violence against children and their families is so pervasive that a new medical acronym, WCNSF, was coined by physicians who needed the shorthand for writing so often in patient care, wounded child with no surviving family. Um, and during that time, Palestinian authorities have even lost the ability to count the dead given the intensity of, uh, of attacks on hospitals, healthcare workers, and health infrastructures. Uh, these numbers are, are likely an undercount then, and others have estimated a death toll over 20,000 with more than 8,000 children killed. Numerous um, hospitals and ambulances have been bombed, killing physicians in the hospital at work, killing patients, staff, and families just seeking refuge. Electricity and running water have been cut off. Medication and other medical supplies have been completely unavailable during an unimaginable wave of patients from an unprecedented rolling mass casualty incident. Even gauze has been unavailable. This simple woven cotton dressing, which has been fundamental to surgical and wound care for centuries since it was named after the city of Gaza, where it was historically mass-produced. And all of this has been broadcast in real time. You know, despite the killing of 50 Palestinian journalists, anyone can watch authenticated video of charred bodies, many women and children in the streets, uh, or body bags filling mass graves, you know, the destroyed remains of a hospital that were once a referral center for all of Gaza. Uh, premature baby, babies have died without the benefit of electricity to run incubators. There's no electricity to power ventilators for the critically ill. Ambulances and hospital systems have collapsed under the weight of the war uh, in the sight of a forced uh, migration, including evacuation of hospitals. And many sick and injured have been left to die in the rubble. Uh, the military published accusations that the hospitals are being used to hide military objectives, uh, but no significant evidence has been presented that could possibly justify the level of death and destruction that has been systematically suffered by Gaza's patients and healthcare workers, to the point where the WHO has stated there is no hospital in Gaza with the capacity of offering the surgical or critical care that the survivors of this violence require. And I'm concerned 
that this is the purpose of targeting hospitals and healthcare workers. If there is no organized response to end it, the systematic destruction of healthcare infrastructure, I believe, will become the normalized new strategy of 21st century warfare. Um, in addition to the infrastructure being destroyed, generations of human capital have been lost to the Palestinian people of Gaza, and it's worth taking a moment to appreciate the depth of their loss. And I was hoping to detail them by reading off the name of every single Palestinian healthcare worker who was killed uh, since October, 250 of them. I'm not sure we're going to have the time for that. But it includes leaders in their field, directors of hospital departments and medical schools, uh, as well as students and trainees just beginning their careers. And it includes many of the nursing and support staff in hospitals, hospital wards, medical laboratories, and other parts of the healthcare system that are essential for a health system to function. Um, and of the 250 healthcare um, workers killed in Gaza since October, um, others have also been taken um, prisoner or hostage, whatever you want to call it, by the Israeli military authority, at least 10, including the director of Al-Shifa Hospital. One case that I think particularly has resonated with me is the case of Dr. Hamam Alo, um, one of the only nephrologists in Gaza, um, who had been interviewed on Democracy Now! Um, and stated that, quote, we are being exterminated. Um, and within a week, he was killed along with many of his family members, including anesthesiologist Dr. Khalil Allo and Dr. Khalil Al-Nakal. Dr. Allo's words, broadcast posthumously, still haunt me as I read through lists of murdered healthcare workers. In the aftermath of the Holocaust, world leaders attempting to prevent such an atrocity from happening again established through the UN the crime of genocide, defined as acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, the national eth ethnic, racial, or religious groups, with uh, um, acts including killing, causing seriously bodily and mental harm, deliberately inf inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring about the destruction, in whole or in part, and taking measures to prevent births within this group. And I believe that the systematic destruction of health hospitals and healthcare facilities, as well as the wholesale killing of healthcare workers and children in Gaza, rises to the level of genocide. And I think once we realize this, we, especially those of us in the healthcare field, take on a moral, ethical, and legal burden to call for the end of the genocide now. Healthcare workers, as well as forensic anthropologists with experience documenting such atrocities, carry the burden in this moment to call for a permanent ceasefire now, immediate release of all the hostages and everyone arbitrarily detained. Let us treat the wounded. Let us bury the dead. Let us document the evidence of war crimes. And let's hold accountable everyone responsible for the atrocities of October 7th and every day since then. Um, and, and I'm not going to have time to read through this list of 250 physicians um, who have been killed. Um, but as I mentioned, they include uh, the dean of uh, preclinical medicine at the Islamic Gaza, uh, University of Gaza, one of the only burn and plastic surgeons uh, in Gaza, the director of internal medicine at Shifa Hospital, um, the dean of his former dean of Islamic University of Gaza, along with his family members who are also physicians. And the list contains so many people who were killed along with their family members, many of whom were also nurses, medical students, uh, physicians, pharmacists, uh, who were all killed. Uh, and part of that massive number, probably an undercount of civilians killed in Gaza. So 
a heavy topic for today. We're going to get uh, close to wrapping up. Thank you, everybody, uh, for joining us on the Trauma Code. Um, this is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald live and in studio. And if you appreciate us, we appreciate you. We need uh, um, financial support to keep this station going, to build on the legacy and the history of WBAI. You can give at give2wbai.org. That's the number two. Uh, or click the donate button on wbai.org. Or call the pledge line at 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero, and if you like the trauma code, you can find our past episodes, uh, such as this one, uh, on the uh, trauma code, or rather on the WBAI radio archives, uh, or search for trauma code wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me on social media, trauma code WBAI, in most platforms, or email trauma code WBAI at gmail.com. Uh, and I wanted to close the episode uh, with a song. Believe it or not by Andre 3000. I believe the name of it is I Swear I Wanted to Write a Rap, But This is Where the Wind Blew Me, which is part of Andre 3000's new album, which is almost entirely woodwind instruments. I think there's a warning on the box that says, Caution, No Bars. So thanks again for joining us, New York. This has been Trauma Code on WBAI. afternoon. For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Here are some headlines for this hour.